Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, do not open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. But to Psalm 77, we are taking a little bit of a break through our series through Hebrews because summer is here. And listen, just take this as a word from one of your pastors who loves you. I think you guys don't pay attention as well in the summer. And Hebrews 6, 7, and 8 are some of the meatiest chapters in all of Hebrews. And so we're going to hit a little bit of a pause button and we're going to do some selected texts for the next few weeks here, uh, Lord willing, through the summer. Why Psalm 77, as you're finding it? Well, I think uh, this is one of the most beautiful experiential psalms in all of the Bible. I talk often about this gap between the realities, the theological truths that we're dwelling in as we're looking at Hebrews, the priestly work of Jesus, that he goes before us into heaven and offers himself as a sacrifice. He's not only the priest that, that brings the sacrifice, he, he is the sacrifice himself. And we can revel in those truths, and they can be so glorious, but at times they can feel so far away. And there's this gap sometimes between what we objectively know to be true and what we subjectively feel. I think Paul was hinting at that when we, uh, he was speaking from Romans chapter 7 before that song we sang. And the Psalms help us to shrink that gap. And in particular, the Psalm today that we're going to look at helps us to shrink the gap between the truth of the glories of the gospel and maybe how we feel on a day-to-day basis through the week. So here's what we're going to do in Psalm 77. I'm going to read through it a few verses at a time. And I'm going to, first I'm going to unfold three quick observations And then there is a phrase in verse 19 that just has captured my mind these past few weeks as I've been thinking about this psalm. And it's this this line in Psalm 77, verse 19, that says that his way or your way, O God, is through the sea. And I want us to camp out there, second half of the sermon, and think about what that means. But first we're going to read through the text and unfold three brief observations, then camp out and try and ask ourselves, what does it mean that his way is through the sea? Okay, now sometimes when you're reading through the Psalms, you'll see a little word kind of over to the right, and it says selah, and you might wonder what that means. I think it's probably a musical term that is these songs were written for Israel to sing in their journeys and in their life with God. In a sense, it's kind of Israel's hymn book in a way. But it's also not just meant to be a musical pause, but an opportunity for the reader to pause and reflect and meditate on what is being said. So each of the three silas that we see, we're going to pause along the way and make a quick observation before we get into verse 19. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for spring. Thank you for the end of a school year. Praise God for those in this room that help to serve our students and teach Thank you for the students that have completed this year, those that have graduated. Thank you for the parents that have, have, uh, praise God, have gotten through another school year. 
And I pray that as we enter into the summer and as we think about this text and as we think about our lives, that you would help us to focus this morning. There's nothing more important than for us to meet you in your word. So meet us in Psalm 77 and show us more of Jesus. And I pray that you do this for the good of your people and for the glory and renown of your name. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Psalm 77. And then after we look at this text, we have the privilege to see, to witness two baptisms this morning. One of them, if I could just indulge you, is my daughter. So I'm excited about that. Psalm 77. This is a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1, he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And there's that for Selah. So let's pause and think about these first three verses. Just one observation here that I think we can take away from these first three verses. And this is just nothing novel or particularly groundbreaking. But I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of this. And here's observation number one. It is that life is often hard and confusing. Life is often hard and confusing. Again, nothing revolutionary or novel in that statement, but this should comfort us. One of the things that I love about the Psalms is that it gives voice to confusion. It gives voice to the experience that many of us feel in our lives as humans that we can come to the Lord and in a sense... He validates the confusion and the difficulty of life by giving voice to it in the Psalms. In fact, that's one of the things that that reinforces to me that the Scriptures are divinely inspired because God actually writes in complaints against Himself in the Bible. But for now, let's just pause and just think that life can be hard and confusing. Look at the words the psalmist uses specifically Asaph. He's the the writer of this psalm. Verse 2, he says, my trouble, I seek the Lord, and my trouble, this is personal. We're not just speaking generally, we're we're talking personally about his trouble. He says at the end of verse 2 that his soul refuses to be comforted. Think about this, just the obstinance of what's going on internally In the heart and mind of Asaph, he's saying, I refuse. I'm in such a bad place that I refuse to be comforted. Nobody can help me. In verse 3, even as he starts to think about God, when I remember God, which we would think maybe might be the the turn, maybe something good's going to happen here. When I think about God, I moan. And when I meditate, my, my spirit faints. I just want us to notice this tremendous gap that the writer Asaph is feeling that he acknowledges, that he confesses between God's goodness and how he's feeling in the moment. And so just one observation, I think it's just worth saying again, life can be hard and confusing. And an implication of that is that we just need each other. We we just need a church culture where it's okay to say that. It's okay to be real with one another. It's okay to confess this type of experience with one another. If we ever have a church culture 
where we have to kind of put on some sort of little church face in order to just get through a Sunday, then let's just, let's just stop what we're doing. Life is hard and confusing at times. Let's keep going. Verse 4. He continues in this lament. He says, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, verse 6, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Okay, so he's starting, he's like, it's like he's gathering himself here. Then my spirit made a diligent search. But where does he go? Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Boy, you might think here in verse 6 where he says, my spirit made a diligent search that maybe, maybe he's going to remember the goodness of God. But when he does, he just gets, seems to go deeper in this hole in his mind. He's, he's basically saying, where is God? Verses 7 through 9 are are, are dark verses in Psalm 77. God spurned me forever. Is he going to ever again show me favor? Has his covenantal love ceased? Are his promises at an end? Have they run out? Has he, has he somehow forgotten to be gracious? Is his anger, is he in anger? Is it, his compassion been consumed by his anger? Which leads me to observation number two here. And it goes in line with observation number one, but it's just a further extrapolation of this idea, and it's that God can handle our complaints. Don't, don't miss here that, that, that God is inspiring Asaph to actually write in these doubts about his character. God can handle our complaints. An implication, I think, from this is that we just need to learn from this psalm how to be honest with God. And that it's okay to be honest with God. In fact, God invites us, and I would say implicitly, commands us, calls us to be honest with Him. One of the things I love about uh, the things that we do here at Crosspoint, in particular the songs that we sing, it's appropriate at times to sing wonderful, glorious, happy songs. But it's good also to sing songs that are in touch with reality. And sometimes some Christian songs kind of that are popular in the Christian sort of world of songs uh, are sometimes a little, a little frivolous or a little, ha- little too happy at times. And when you go through the Psalms, you read these songs of lament. I mean, think about this. This is, this is a song that God inspired Asaph to write. And here, these, Israel would sing this. They're singing, has, the steadfast love for, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? They're singing that to one another. God is giving expression to their complaints. He's, he's, he's voicing it. And it's okay, let me just say this, it's okay if you come to this room Sunday after Sunday, if and, and if at times you do not feel happy all the time. In fact, I think that if you feel like you can't at times feel like this, 
with the people who should most be able to identify with you in this, then something is really wrong with the Christian community around you. I'm, 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 I'm fine with happy songs. I just don't think that every day is happy. You understand what I'm saying? Happy. Well, sometimes I'm sad, you know. And Asaph is sad, and it's... Let me, I mean, I'm kidding around, but friends, are you at times a sad Christian? That's okay. God has written your experience into the Bible. And he can handle our complaints. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this. Okay, starting to turn now. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Stop and think about this. Okay, finally a turn. It's been, it's been kind of depressing up to this point. I mean, the first three verses, he's just complaining about how hard life is. Secondly, he goes even deeper into his hole. He says in verse 6 that he made a diligent search, and he comes out of that search even more discouraged than he was before. But now in verse 10, there's this turn. He, he, he starts to see daylight. He, he searches again. Verse 10, he says, I will appeal. It's almost as if he's bringing his mood, he's bringing his feelings into the courtroom, in a sense. And this, this is the third observation that I have, is that we should, we should cross-examine our complaints. We should cross-examine our complaints. As I read this, verse 10 in particular, I, I had in mind a, a courtroom scene. Now, I'm not a, a legal mind. I don't know anything about uh, legal proceedings in a courtroom. I've only been in a courtroom once or twice before when I got excused from jury duty. But I have watched uh, courtroom TV shows, so therefore it makes me uh, an expert in this, right? And, and I know this, is that in any good courtroom scene, there's this prosecuting attorney who's just peppering this witness and making the case look so bad. And then the prosecuting attorney says, well, I rest my case. And then the judge looks over and he says, well, attorney for the defense, would you, would you like to cross-examine the witness? And what kind of defense attorney would just sort of sit there doodling on his legal pad or her legal pad and not get up and rise and cross-examine the witness? Get up off of your chair and, and appeal to your case, appeal for your case. And that's what's going on here. This is happening. This courtroom scene is in the mind and the heart of Asaph, the writer. And he's saying, no, 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 wait a minute now. The prosecutor of my own feelings has had its way with the witness, but now the defense attorney is getting up, and I'm going to look again at this case, and I'm going to appeal this matter. And he says, now wait a minute now. I'm going to get outside of myself. And I don't know if there's anything to this. This is just actually something, and I'm sort of scared to do this because I don't know if it's 
theologically or exegetically or even something in the text, but I just saw this this morning as I read this text again, and so here goes. If I'm wrong, you can email me and tell me that I'm just making a leap in the text, but I think that my point is true even if it's not really in the text. And here it is. Look at, his, look at what the prosecuting attorney of his own feelings says in verse 6. He says, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. He's inside of himself. And he's making this diligent search. And he says in verse 7, the Lord spurns forever. He's never going to be favorable towards me. His, his steadfast love has ceased. His promises are over. He's forgotten how to be gracious. His, his anger's consumed his compassion. And, and he's inside of himself. But then the defense attorney, he remembers the gospel comes and now stands against the prosecution of his own feelings. He says, wait a minute, I'm going to appeal to this. And now he gets outside of himself. And instead of me, my, in verse 11, he gets outside of himself and he remembers the Lord. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I'm going to get outside of myself. I'm remembering what you've done, not how I'm feeling in this moment. I will ponder all of your work, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds, not my subjective feelings or even my failure right now. And do you see what the psalmist is doing? He's cross-examining his own feelings, and he's saying they're real, they're true, but they do not have the final word. And he remembers God's past goodness. He gets out of myself. But okay, all that's leading up now to the end here, verses 16 through 20. All that was just, that was just, uh, that was just warm up for verse 19. Verse 19 is glorious if we can see it. Okay, verse 16. When the water saw you. Okay, now, now he's, let me just tell you the flow of this psalm. He's reflected. This is Asaph. He's complained. He's talked about how hard life is. He's made a turn. He's, he's, he's gathered himself. He's remembered the goodness of God. And if we were then thinking of this in a New Testament, New Covenant, say he's, since he's remembered the gospel, okay, now he's got his feet underneath him in verse 16, and now he's getting some steam, and now he's, he's coming out shadow boxing. And in verse 16, he's going to remember, at least for an Old Testament person, maybe the greatest work of God, which was the rescue of Israel from Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea. And so he's thinking about this great and glorious event of the rescue of the people of God in Exodus. And he says in verse 16, I think of the Red Sea. You know the story. Israel has been in Egyptian captivity for generations. God raises up Moses, sends the plagues to Egypt through Moses' hand, finally wrestles Israel from Egypt despite Pharaoh's obstinance, despite the plagues, has Israel at the banks of the Red Sea, tells Moses to stick his staff in the ground, to part the Red Sea for Israel to go through it, to be saved miraculously. And then the Egyptian army follows them, chasing them, and the Red Sea crashes over Egypt and destroys the enemies of God's people. This great and glorious scene of God's rescue of his people in Exodus. That's what's in Asaph's mind here in 16 through 20. And he says, verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed 
on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, listen to this. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 19 again. He is remembering, he's meditating on the rescue of Egypt at the Red Sea, or the rescue of Israel from Egypt at the Red Sea. And he says, verse 19, your way was through the sea. What does that mean? That his way is through the sea. What does it mean? Three brief thoughts. First is that God's way is surprising and sovereign. God's way is surprising and sovereign. Think about this, friends. Israel had no hope. They, they were a small little group of people. They had no enemies. They had no training. I mean, they had no, 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 no training in, in, in fighting wars. They were, they were slaves for generations. And God, in his sovereignty, not because of anything good in them, not because they had seen sort of hope arising in some new leader that had come their way, but simply because of his surprising sovereign grace, God worked salvation for Israel. If you're looking at Israel, in comparison to Egypt, there's nothing in Israel that would have caused any spectator to think or conclude that Israel had any chance. So the first thing that we got to see when we, see when we look at verse 19, that his way is through the sea, is that God is not dependent on circumstances to bring about his sovereign will. He can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. God is sovereign. Not only is he sovereign, he strangely, and this is a mystery to us, he delights in working through, humanly speaking, impossible and improbable situations because when he does, more glory goes to his name. Now here's the strange thing that I see in my own life and in the life of churches like us. Here's this strange way that people like us that seem to love the sovereignty of God and the exhaustive providence of God, not only in salvation, but in all things. Strangely, the way this doctrine or the effect that this truth has in our lives is not to propel us into great faith in God's ways, but to somehow make us strangely lackadaisical and lazy in asking for him to be sovereign. In other words, people that believe in this truth should be the people that are boldest in their prayers. We should pray bigger, bolder prayers for God's surprising grace. We shouldn't just be lazy until our backs are up against the wall and our only hope is God doing something miraculous. But it should produce in us this kind of big prayer to a big God sort of faith. Because God's way is surprising and it is sovereign. Let me just stop and say, is there some situation in your life, is there some loved one that you have that is 
uh, that seems so far gone that it just doesn't seem like there's any way that they could be saved or that they could be changed or that God could move in their life. Uh, friends, see this picture. His way is through the sea. The unpredictable, unforeseen, unknowable, imperceptible, strange, mysterious, unexpected way. God's way is through the sea. Nothing is too difficult for God. Let's not, let's not, let's, let's do one more application before we move on. Not just outside of you, but what about inside of you? What about something going on inside of your heart? Some sort of spiritual battle? Some sort of habitual sin? Some sort of thing in you that you just like, God, I, I do not have the power. I feel as helpless as Israel in Egyptian captivity. His way is through the sea. He can rescue his people. He does rescue his people, even from themselves. Secondly, what does this mean? It means that, I think clearly, that salvation, the way to salvation, is only and always through the cross. What is the Red Sea, friends? The Red Sea is a picture of the wrath of God. And the enemies of God's people that are pursuing us. And God parts the sea and he causes his people to pass through in grace even though they deserve to die. There was nothing good in Israel. God didn't choose Israel because they were somehow more righteous than anybody else. But he loved them because he loved them, Deuteronomy 6 says. And God parts the Red Sea. They pass through Egypt is consumed by the waters, which are a picture of God's wrath all throughout the Old Testament. And ultimately, what is the Red Sea a picture of? It's a picture of the cross. It's a kind of Old Testament shadow of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus on the cross lays down his life as a perfect sacrifice to absorb, to satisfy the wrath of God. In fact, Jesus on the cross and in places in the New Testament is pictured as the one who he, he causes the floodwaters of God's wrath to be, to be drank dry, to be dried out. Jesus removes the wrath of God from the people of God so that they can pass through safely to dry ground. So this picture of how God saves, it's not that God says, oh, well, you know, you, you tried hard. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge your effort, Israel, or Christian, or person, and I'm going to kind of just sort of grade you on a curve, and I'm going to say, well, okay, let's, let's just kind of bring you across. No, God will punish sin. It will either be punished on the cross, in Christ, or in his wrath on the judgment day. And when we read verse 19, it says, his way is through the sea. Jesus goes through the sea for us, and he satisfies God's wrath. Let me just ask you a question. I know that if you're, if you're around Crosspoint for a while, you hear this all the time, but friends, this is, this is the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is not the good news that God is kind of on your side, and if you meet him halfway with a decent amount of effort and try hard and go to church and do mostly good things, that you'll be okay. Because here's the question, here's the fault, here's the Achilles heel of that system, is how much goodness is good enough? When is it good enough? 
That's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the wrath of God is against all of humanity and the only hope that that wrath would be removed is through the work of Jesus on the cross that the sea of God's judgment that should be ours is dried up by Jesus on the cross. And so friends, the most fundamental question that any of us can ask ourselves is we will all stand before our maker one day. What will be our plea that that we were pretty decent people or that Jesus dried up God's justice, dried up God's judgment, dried up our punishment on the cross. His way is through the sea. There's no other way to the Lord but through the sea of the cross that Jesus alone can dry up for you if you will trust in him. His way is through the sea. And then finally, the way of the Christian life is the way of the cross. So this is the beauty. This is the, the, this is the important part of, of, of seeing the, the cross-centered life. Not only are we saved in a moment because of Jesus' work on the cross, But now what happens in salvation is we are united with Jesus. And we then now live a life of bearing the cross against this world and showing the beauty and the the supremacy of Christ in our life by the way that we endure the difficulties that we still face. The Christian life is the way of the cross. It's enduring suffering. It's, it's bearing shame. It's, it's not all defeatist. No, that's not the picture I'm painting. But it is becoming like Jesus in our suffering so that he uses the way we live our life as a witness to the onlooking world. Springer read it for us earlier. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what happens in the cross when the cross drinks the wrath of God? Then we are united with Christ and now we are in him and he's in us. And the life that we now live as we endure suffering becomes a display, a witness to the onlooking world that Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from that and bring us all safely home. And now all of these trials that we have to face, this sea that we are in the middle of as we live this life, is a display of the surpassing worth of Christ. Reuben read it in 1 Peter chapter 1 at the beginning. Let me pick up in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So when we say that the way of God is through the sea, it's not that you have this one-time salvation experience and now everything is wonderful. No, we we still face and are grieved by various trials. But why? Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the way of the Christian is through the sea, to the cross, to Christ. And even the enduring, the, the remaining trials that we face, this kind of face, this kind of sea that we deal with, is meant to produce in us more of Christ, more joy, more expectation, more refinement, so that he uses our lives as a witness to the world around us, and we long for Jesus more. His way is through the sea. Friends, let's pray, pray big prayers, because God is miraculous. Let's remember that our only hope is Christ, because his way is through the sea. And let's remember that our ongoing trials is our privilege to keep going through the sea with God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this psalm. Thank you that in just a moment we'll get to see a picture of how you bring your people through the sea in the baptism of these two young ladies that have grown up in this church. And as they go down into the waters and they come up testifying to your grace in their lives, may it be a vivid picture to us that your way is through the sea, that we are buried with baptism into your death, and that we were raised to the newness of life. Lord, thank you that your way is through the sea, that You are miraculous, that you save, not because of anything good in us, but because of your great power. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for maintaining your holiness and punishing all sin, either on your son's shoulders on the cross or on judgment day. Thank you that nothing, nothing challenges your holiness. And thank you that even the remaining seas that we have to endure as your people have purpose and are part of your plan. Lord, indeed, your way is through the sea. May we rest in that. And may we find strength for the journey. And may we give you glory as we see these two young ladies profess their faith in Jesus and proclaim that your way is through the sea. Your way is the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.